The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! No, I literally just said kind of, I'll just, we'll talk about it on the air, it's fine. Um, I do have a list of a few movies for the uh, kind of Instead of Jesus camp, mm-hmm. so uh, we can do that at the beginning if you want, and then I know you've got some comments you want to read, um, and so, yeah. yeah. Anything you might have watched this week, if you want to bring that up. Too. I haven't really watched anything this week, except for um, what I did for the podcast, so. Um, All right, cool. I'll, I just have one I'll just briefly mention, and okay. that'll be it. Okay. Um, all right. We are back. Welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Leah Russell, with my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? Doing well. I just ate an egg roll, so I might have a little bit of cabbage in my teeth. Hopefully that's not going to uh, disturb anybody, but, you know. Other <laughs> uh, than that, doing just fine. I'm just surprised the cabbage is not in your beard. Uh, we usually, I mean, the gravitational pull of the beard is not quite as large um, yeah. as to attract the cap, so we're good. <laughs> All right, so uh, today is going to be sort of uh, Daniel's show more than my show because he picked the movies this time around, so uh, uh, it'll be interesting. He, he definitely picked two, uh, in some ways, very vastly different films and uh, very interesting films at that, and uh, we will be getting into those later. Uh, but First, we'll do a little bit of a follow-up from a previous episode uh, where we were talking about a movie you watched, uh, Jesus Camp, and you Mm -hmm. had suggestions for better documentaries than Jesus Camp, as we both sort of uh, said it wasn't a very very good documentary overall. So uh, if if you'd like to run down a list of uh, similar films that are much better, Daniel, uh, go right ahead. Sure. Um, they're not. Uh, one of these is not a documentary. I'll just uh, throw that out there. But um, I really was trying to go for stuff that would kind of help you to understand the evangelical subculture uh, mm-hmm. in the United States, and I assume in Canada it's not too different. But you know, at least in the in the United States, um, and kind of the the way that the evangelical subculture is kind of married to the religious right, mm-hmm. um, and so it's become not just a, a religious or a social movement, but a kind of political wing of yeah. a particular party. Um, but first, I, I think the one of the best ways to kind of uh, introduce yourself to this, if you're not familiar with it, is uh, actually a little uh, kind of independent comedy from uh, about ten years ago called Saved. Oh yeah, um, I remember this, that. Uh, Macaulay Culkin has a small role in this. Um, Jenna Malone, um, and this is uh, uh, Mandy Moore. I mean, this is very much a, a film about this uh, this young girl who gets pregnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she's kind of kept ignorant of, of birth control, and she believes Jesus told her to go sleep with her uh, gay friend in order to convert him away from gayness, and during the process of kind of ostracization that that uh, implies, mm-hmm. uh, kind of comes to uh, a more tolerant and forgiving understanding of human nature. Um, but it's such a great... Uh, 
little satirical piece about this kind of evangelical subculture. It's, it honestly pulls a lot of punches. It's not nearly as, as hard-hitting as I think. Um, Michael Stipe was originally a, uh, from R.E.M., was originally a um, producer on the film uh-huh. and didn't like the finished version uh, just because I think he was expecting it to be a lot more kind of dark comedy um, as opposed to just a, a little bit more kind of kind of indie, comedy, kind of friendly, happy kind of stuff. Um, but it's a really funny movie. Um, it's about 90 minutes long, and it's uh, probably worth seeing if you want to kind of get inside that subculture a little bit. Um, because you may think that some of this stuff is really, really out there, but I promise you it's not. Yeah, <laughs> uh, for the most part, this is pretty straightforward. Um, all the rest of my list are uh, documentaries. Um, <laughs> the Revisionaries, uh, this is from a few years ago, I think 2009 or 2010. Um, and this is a film about um, a school board. There, There's a uh, uh, the Texas State School Board... Um, Approving committee for textbooks, mm-hmm. um, and looking to essentially um, insert language that would uh, approve the teaching of intelligent design in Texas classrooms, um, and the, kind of the political battle behind the scenes in terms of that. Um, this is an important issue because it um, the big states uh, here in the U.S. like California and Texas and Florida, um, uh, textbook publishers, you know, have to get their books approved by state, local local and mm-hmm. state boards, and um, those textbooks get approved through standards that are written in the state legislatures, and yeah. hardly anybody on a national level is paying attention to these guys, so they get to kind of just go and do what they want. Um, and so when some, you know, uh, fuck-knuckle in Texas or Alabama, <laughs> particularly Texas or Florida, decides to insert um, crazy-ass language... Publishers don't want to write 50 different versions of the book. They want to write one version of the book, and so they write textbooks uh, following that path. And um, it is kind of one of the things that, um, you know, you know, a couple of people in a state legislature, in if you happen to be in Texas or Florida, can really affect the way that science is taught all over the place. And it's a really yeah. um, interesting look at the kind of inner dynamics of kind of how this works on a, on a nuts and bolts level. Yeah, and it's uh, insid- it's insidious how people like that. Uh, I mean, they're they're the same people who uh, essentially change creationism into intelligent design to try to make it sound like a scientific theory theory that should be you know taught uh, as counterpoint to evolutionary theory. So, sure. Um, another uh, film kind of on the same uh, realm. Uh, there's a film by a filmmaker named Randy Olson from a few years ago. It's called Flock of Dodos. <laughs> um, and this is uh, explicitly about the the uh, intelligent design movement and how um, you know creationism and intelligent design. Uh, you know, he interviews a bunch of the kind of leading lights in that movement and kind of how they uh, communicate with one another. Um, I think this is a, a really now this is kind of a fun movie. I mean, it's designed to be this kind of uh, funny uh, Daily Show style documentary. Um, oh yeah, and uh, I think it. it it's not perfect, but it's definitely uh, it does help to kind of understand that. Um, and then two that are kind of explicitly uh, political, um, kind of showing the the rise of uh, one of them is actually a film called Journeys with George, um, and this is a, a film uh, filmed during the 2000 presidential election, which sure. um, led to George W. Bush being um, elected. I put in quotes uh, <laughs> president of the United States for for the first four years. Um, it's a film made by Alexandria Pelosi, who is uh, Nancy Pelosi's daughter. Uh-huh. Nancy Pelosi being the prior, uh, the previous um, um, uh, Senate Majority Leader. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she's she's still in um, 
uh, California, but uh, she is uh, part of my House majority. Uh, anyway, whatever. Uh, she was a she's a high up person in the in the uh, United States legislature. Um, but uh, her daughter, I mean, really gives a pretty balanced portrait. I think all in all, in terms of like, you know, George Bush was a was a nice guy and and funny and and charming and ate a lot of junk food. And uh, you know, the, the film goes through. Uh, apparently, he loved Cheetos, as I recall. Um, you know, so, so he's constantly eating Cheetos. Um, yeah, he was a frat boy for fuck's sakes. I mean, he was, and uh, but it, but it very much is a film that kind of follows just the the political campaign, and mm. you kind of get to see what the inner circle of what this is like. Um, and once you kind of see, I mean, you know, as someone who is kind of familiar with the political scene and kind of follows this stuff, you know, there's um, not much that was like new to me, but it is kind of like you know, well, if you're a political pr- reporter on these uh, on the trail of a candidate. You listen to the stump speech over and over and over again, and so you can kind of get footage of, like, the reporters a little like mumbling along with Bush's stump speech because he just says it over and over again. Um, you get the way that the little uh, um, uh, interpersonal conflicts between uh, Bush and some of the reporters affected, like who got to sit in the front and who got to be favored mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. And um, this it's a little bit less like focused on this uh, kind of religious right issue, but I certainly think if you want to understand, you know, kind of the political situation in the United States and the way that the uh, the right wing is kind of married to that, uh, I think it's worth seeing. Um, this one is I don't I don't know that it's on Netflix, but I know I think um, uh, there was a YouTube link. I think that it's on YouTube, so um, I haven't checked it out to see if it's there. And the last one, I promise, is the last one. Um, and this is a film called Boogeyman, the Lee Atwater story. Okay. Um, this is uh, Lee Atwater is basically the uh, progenitor to Carl Rove. Um, Carl Rove basically did the uh, the Lee Atwater playbook. Um, Lee Atwater was this guy, um, southern honky tonk kind of guy, played in a blues band. Um, if you met him, he'd probably be a nice, amiable guy. He's dead now, but um, this—he's uh, also the guy who kind of invented the idea of uh, we're going to divide and conquer the political world, and we're going to marry ourselves to the religious right. And um, it shows just just how he did uh, dirty tricks and all sorts of other stuff to uh, to do that. And um, yeah, no, that's that's five movies that are uh, better than Jesus Camp at showing this world. Um, and that's kind of what I was going for. And uh, if I think of any more, I'll I'll show them on a preview on a future podcast. But that was kind of what I came up with after just kind of thinking about it for a while. Um, and all five are are really good movies if you want to kind of get at the core of this. Yeah, awesome. And I'll try to uh, find some appropriate links, even if it's just the uh, Internet Movie Database links. I'll uh, put them in the show notes as well, so uh, people can check them out if they want to. Cool. All right, awesome. Thanks, Dan. Um, so uh, I do have one movie to mention that I watched in, in the previous week, but before we get to that, we should get to uh, user comments. Uh, try to try to get th- this out of the way uh, expediently as possible, but uh, might not happen because uh, our uh, our good friend of the show, uh, Greg, has uh, left a nice little smattering of comments on our last episode. So uh, we'll try to get through them here. Uh, really appreciate it, by the way, Greg. Um, He's been uh, leaving some really great comments the last couple of weeks. So uh, first he says, uh, I know I'm a bit late to the party, but I really enjoyed your Christopher Lee tribute. Very well done. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Uh, I was actually quite uh, quite personally uh, happy with how that one turned out. So uh, thanks very much. Um, 
in our response to our movie god questions, he says, Die Hard versus Lethal Weapon. Both original movies are classics, but I'd give the nod to Die Hard. In terms of sequels, I think you don't give Lethal Weapon 2 enough credit. It's also a classic, in his opinion. Parts 3 and 4 are not terrible, but don't live up to the originals. Die Hard 2 and 3 were okay. The fourth one is watchable, and the latest one is terrible. I definitely agree there. Um, Overall, as a franchise, I'd give it to Lethal Weapon. But if I had to kill one, it would be Lethal Weapon, as I feel it's much less influential. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Although, I honestly, I just, I really don't give a fuck about Lethal Weapon. Honestly, it's just that that, that whole series really doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> I, I I agree that the second film. I don't remember if I said this on the podcast uh, last week, but I agree that the second film is actually quite good. Um, the first two are, are really nice, and the first one is um, uh, written by uh, Shane Black, mm-hmm. who is uh, going to go on. He did a uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang a few years yeah. ago. He wrote directed that, and then Iron Man three and um. I, you know, that's the one that really made his name. Um, I, I think uh, if you haven't seen that in a while, it might be worth revisiting. Okay. Um, it's it's uh, you know it's definitely this kind of uh, '80s tastic uh, action film. I mean, it kind of set the standard for a lot of that. But there's a lot of really clever, interesting stuff going on in it, and um, I think that it, unfortunately, it, it's sort of hard to view it without um, viewing it in the context of a lot of its imitators later on now, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it kind of feels old and hackneyed when it was new at the time. Um, and it's got Gary Busey being a badass, like, before yeah. his motorcycle accident like, ruined his brain. So, you know, there's <laughs> that, too. Right on. Okay, and he says in response to our uh, Tim Burton Batman versus Richard Donner Superman he said he'd kill Superman over and over. Sure, it's one of the OG superhero movies, but it's also borderline unwatchable nowadays. He says Batman 89 still holds up, as does its sequel. It also was the first time on screen that Batman became the dark superhero we know today, as this was a few years after Frank Miller's uh, released the uh, game-changing Dark Knight Returns in Batman Year One. Um, Got to disagree there. Uh, although Superman, the original Superman does have that one really bullshit, uh, turn the world, turn time back by flying around the world. Uh, yeah. Uh, fuck that shit. But, uh, honestly, I, I personally don't find that the Tim Burton Batman's hold up for me at all. Um, I, I watch them now and I just can't, um, I just can't do it. I, I find them. I I don't think uh, Michael Keaton is right for the part of Batman. Uh, I think Joker is the only good thing in that. Uh, there's no Commissioner Gordon character really. Like mm-hmm. Commissioner Gordon in that is just uh, totally neutered. He's he's worse than uh, the portrayals of Watson in early Sherlock Holmes films, where they just made him a bumbling oaf. Um, and Batman Returns really don't like that one at all. Uh, I, I think the problem is Tim Burton didn't give a fuck about Batman. He was more interested in the villains than he was Batman himself, and it shows in the films for me personally, but that's just my opinion of it. So I haven't rewatched um any of those films lately, as in like within the last ten years. So I, I'll uh, I, I have you know memories. I uh, I think um you know from what I've kind of heard people talking about you know from from a while back that that Returns holds up better than the original. In a lot of uh, in a lot of people's minds, just because mm-hmm. it's it's a little bit darker, it's a little bit more elemental, and if you kind of, I mean, you're right that um, I mean, let's be realistic. Batman is is really a boring character. Like like Batman, you know, yeah, you're sad. Your parents died. You know, you're this dark figure. You know, the only way to really make Batman interesting is to go full on psychopath with him. 
or to treat him as a camp character. Like you really come to these films as uh, you know, looking more at the the, the villains. I think, um, right. and that goes for the Christian Bale Batman. I mean, the, the Nolan Batman. I, I don't think. You know, you could swap out Christian Bale for for a lot of other actors, mm-hmm. and I don't I don't know that the Dark Knight would suffer greatly if you know Jake Gyllenhaal or somebody was playing you know <laughs> Batman instead of uh, Christian Bale. I think Christian Bale is a is a uh, a better Bruce Wayne than than Batman, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know. For me, I do prefer you know personally just the Superman films. I get. Where he's coming from, where he says it's borderline unwatchable. I mean, there's a lot of uh, padding, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of stupid shit. You know, the can you read my mind sequence um, that takes up a good, you know, 15 minutes in the middle of the film. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the kind of bumbling Otis music. Uh, the uh, uh, I mean, there's a lot of s- silly stuff in it, but ultimately, I think there's a, there's a core that that really works in that original uh, Donner Superman film and the and the first sequel. I think in both cases yeah, the first I, two are the really good ones. So, you know. Well, I th- I think Superman 2 is better and I think I think overall there's a there's a really good sort of like uh, mythological kind of feeling to those films. Like there's mm. a bit of a myth building kind of thing there that really captures kind of the spirit of the actual character uh, and the stories surrounding him. And it's got that score and uh I, I won't apologize for absolutely loving that fucking title song and the music's very oh, elevating, yeah. very very good. And I mean, you got you got Terrence Stamp as General Zod in the sequel, so I, I can't. I, I I love that. So <laughs> oh, and uh, and the uh, the girl who played um, uh, Zora or Zara or whatever whatever her um, name is. Yeah, uh, um, fuck. I have yeah. I have a I have a photo of her by the way I've been I'm meaning to send this to you and I'm saying it on on air now so you get to either edit this out or um, show the photo I'll send it to you. There's a photo where she did a, a stage production um, sometime in the uh, early in the late 70s I guess mm-hmm. and she is with John Pertwee um, in a bed uh, naked covering her breast with her with her hands yeah. and John Pertwee is kind of doing a, a similar motion with his. Um, yeah. And it's uh, both funny and sexy, so I'll uh, make sure to send that to you so you can awesome. enjoy it. I'm I'm kind of kicking myself for not remembering her name because I really like her, and she was kind of like woefully miscat, like basically misused in films afterwards. Like her career just kind of petered out a bit, and she was just kind of. Well, she has she has that issue. I think that so many actresses have is you you reach your past fuckable day, your, mm-hmm. your last fuckable day. Um, which I, I put in quotes here, um, just because I don't believe that that should be a thing. Sarah Douglas, Sarah, Sarah Douglas, Douglas yes. Yeah. Um, but you, but you reach that period where uh, casting directors don't think anybody wants to fuck you anymore, and then you can't get work until later down the line you become uh, the mom character and everything, or the grandma. And uh, it's uh, pretty much fucking bullshit because there are lots of really talented women who uh, hit the age of twenty nine and then suddenly, oh, I can't get work anymore because you know. Cetera, yeah, because you know, no one, no one, no one wants to fuck uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal anymore. She's just, she's a dog now. I mean, she, yeah, she's she's, she's, very she's, a, she's, she's a total dog. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I agree. Absolutely I mean, pathetic. I wouldn't, I wouldn't fuck her with your dick. <laughs> uh, just for the record, I would do awful, awful things to Maggie Gyllenhaal. Just, just for the record. Yeah. With my dick, Con- awesome. Consensually, consensually, but I would do awful, <laughs> awful things to make Gyllenhaal. 
Right on. Uh, and we we, got we'd to, reenact some secretary in my house. It would, it would be awesome. Uh, there we go. Well, that'd be much better than fucking uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, so, and he's got two more comments here. And uh, he said he watched both Blue Ruin and Nightcrawler in preparation for the podcast. Uh, awesome. So he probably even did more research than we did for that podcast. Um, he says Blue Ruin was awesome. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Nightcrawler was interesting, and I enjoyed most of it. But the ending just didn't work for me. I'm usually not a big fan of such open-ended conclusions. Um, I, I can sort of see his point. Like it, it feel the the conclusion f- sort of feels like maybe you can't quite believe he got away with it. But I don't know. I, I sort of bought into it because he's the character uh, is pretty pretty smart and pretty manipulative, and he covers his tracks pretty well. Like he's a straight up psychopath. He plans out. The stuff he does. So I, I, I didn't have a lot of trouble uh, buying into the idea that he would, you know, end up being successful. I mean, there's a lot of successful psychopaths, and <laughs> I mean that is a that is a trait that uh, uh, psychologists and stuff have have basically, you know, uh, recorded that um, a lot of successful people are sort of these sort of psychopathic characters, not necessarily violent psychopaths, but psychopaths all the same, you know? I agree. Um, you know, for me, I just, you know, whenever I, I get that if the ending didn't work for you, it didn't work for you. Like, I mean, I understand. Um, but, uh, for me, I mean, it's, it's intended to be an open ending. It's intended Mm -hmm. to, um, not really draw draw the audience to a specific conclusion, and I think there are lots of conclusions that you can possibly draw about um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character's motivations, about like what's going to happen later. Um, personally, I think that the that the cops going to like um, find the um, find the unedited video footage, and he's mm-hmm. going to end up going to prison. Um, that that's my personal opinion about what's going to happen to him uh, down the line, because uh, you know. There's no way he covered his tracks that well, but yeah. um, you know the, the point isn't what he does next. The point is where he is now, like, yeah. like where where he where you know he he wins essentially, and that's that's I think kind of the point of the film is that at least for right now he has succeeded and he is uh, running a successful business. And um, even if he ended up going to prison, I think that business would continue and the, the ethos that he developed would continue because it makes money for people. And I think that's, I, I mean, you know, that's certainly a, a place that you could take this. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, again, I understand if you don't like the ending. Um, I don't think the ending is the strongest part of that film, mm-hmm. but um, I, I disagree that it's a problem necessarily. I mean, I just kind of, you know, I, I think the ending is what it is. Yeah, you make a good point. Like, even if down the line he went to jail, I mean, I think the main thing to look at is that he has started something that is going to, you know, because of his behavior and the way he is, it's going to attract more people like him, and that business is probably going to go on and succeed without him, uh, you know. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's more of a criticism of that sort of personality type and media in general and the sensationalism and all that other stuff. I mean, you know, we could <laughs> we could start going off on a tangent on that shit. Yeah, but I, we're th- not I think we that. already talked for like 45 minutes about this film, so I don't know that yeah. we need to keep going. But, uh, yeah, no, again, I get it. I just, you know, yes, I agree. It has, yeah. it has a weird ending. <laughs> uh, and he also says uh, he, he noticed an interesting similarity uh, between the 
two what he considers uh, fairly two different fairly uh, different movies, uh, Nightcrawler and uh, Maniac Cop Three. He said he watched both recently, and he noticed that they had some characters in uh, Maniac, Cop, Maniac Cop 3 that are almost exactly like the characters in Nightcrawler in that they are trying to get raw footage for the news. In fact, some of the early scenes in both movies where they are listening to police scanners and speeding to crime scenes almost mirror each other. Oh, interesting, because I've never seen Maniac Cop 3. so now I'm gonna have I to haven't either, it. so apparently we need to see it. And maybe, yeah. maybe we could do a supercut of uh, <laughs> Nightcrawler and Maniac Cop 3 uh, you know, make it one film. That that could be interesting. <laughs> yeah, right on. Maniac um, Nightcrawler, that's what we'll call it. <laughs> um, or Night Maniac. It, it's Robert Zadar in Maniac Cop 3. Uh, yeah, he was in all the Maniac Cops, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's, it'd be a Zadar-rific. Zadar-rific. Uh, Supercut, yeah. <laughs> I'm in a silly mood, I apologize. <laughs> it's all right, you've been drinking all day. <laughs> All right, so uh, I'll just mention briefly uh, what I watched uh, this week. I, the only thing I really watched of note was I revisited The Warriors uh, from 1979 after not watching it. Have, have not watched it for like 20 years, and I just saw it on Netflix and revisited it on a, on a chance and found myself enjoying it a lot more than I did when I first saw it. Uh, I think the movie holds up really well. I think it improves with age, and I really love it. I, I love the. Uh, I, I think um, it's it's a very comic booky kind of movie. Like there, it's got a very sort of comic booky style to it, action wise and everything like that. Very colorful characters, and I think it's uh, the main thing I took from it is that it's lacking. It, it it has in it what a lot of modern day sort of comic book adaptations are lacking at this point, where everything now has to be like really mean-spirited and gritty and uh, just uh, kind of depressing. And I find that um, this this movie still sort of captures the kind of stuff that I remember reading in comic books, like sort of the sense of fun and, um, you know, a bit more lightheartedness to it than uh, what I see in comic book movies these days. So, you know, it, there's, never, there's never one, like, uh, way to do these kind of things, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, I tend to get a a pretty uh, low tolerance for you know kind of silly kind of bright comedy sort of stuff and, and mm-hmm. but it also depends on the on on what movie you're you're making you know um so um I actually haven't seen the Warriors but I've seen so many ripoffs and parodies of it that I feel like I've seen the Warriors so <laughs> um but uh yeah I'll I'll have to check that out sometime that I mean it's kind of always been on my list of like oh yeah I should watch that at some point but I've I've just never seen it so I'll just leave it at that. Right on. All right, so uh, we'll move on now, and we'll get to our first film that Daniel picked for us this week, and I think we'll start with The Libertine from 1968, so I'll uh, hand it over to you for the introduction there, Daniel. Sure. Um, I picked two films. I literally sat and uh, looked at uh, what was uh, in kind of the featured Netflix things and just found two films that I was pretty sure Lee hadn't seen, that I knew I hadn't seen, and that would be interesting, and it would have nothing to do with one another. So that was that was kind of the, the, the goal today, uh, was to pick two things that looked interesting that I would like to watch that I wasn't didn't think Lee had seen that would be fun to talk about. Um, so The Libertine is essentially a film. It's from 68. It's a, a kind of European art house erotic picture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a film about a kind of kept woman who uh, her husband dies, her kind of her kind of sugar daddy dies, 
Uh, she finds out that he had this secret life where he was uh, sleeping around and engaging in all kinds of um, kinky sex uh, with uh, a number of, of people that she knows, and it kind of portrays her investigating that world mm -hmm. uh, and um, you know, eventually finding some degree of happiness. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of the plot summary. I don't know. What did you think of uh, The Libertine before I kind of go off on it, I think? All right. Um, so when I first started watching it, and uh, I'll, I'll just say these two movies you picked, I didn't do any research to start with. I just went into both of them cold just, yeah. for, just for the fuck of it. So That's um, pretty much what I do with every few days is just sit down and watch it. So, you know. Yeah. So I, I started watching this, and uh, my initial feeling was like, okay, this is going to be something of sort of typical of the era. It's going to be sort of the typical kind of – uh, sexploitation, sexy farce slash comedy that a lot of this stuff was coming from Italy at the time. Um, so, you know, a lot of uh, really badly stereotyped male characters and a lot of really badly stereotyped female characters engaging in all kinds of uh, stuff that we were talking about in our sex comedy series, essentially, except for to a much higher degree, right? Um, right. But actually, uh, I found myself enjoying it somewhat i was i was definitely impressed from the start that uh it definitely wasn't going in that direction it was a bit more thoughtful it was a bit more interested in the main character uh it was much more about her exploration after uh discovering her her ex or her uh her late husband's uh basically uh little sex uh <laughs> bordello apartment well, thing he had how, going on how nice it is that apartment, by the way. Like that is, like that is that is very much what people in 1968 thought a luxury apartment looked like. Um, just to let you know, like that is yeah. so. Um, you see, you hear like you know, you know, um, <laughs> you hear like apartment kept for sex, and you know, like on the side, and wow, it's very much exactly what. You know the the highest inversion of that possible. I think that you could put yeah. in, a, in a cheap apartment. So yeah, we're talking an apartment where like basically all the walls are mirrors. <laughs> mm -hmm. there, there's a there's a mirror on the ceiling. There's a mirror on the floor. Yeah. Um, you know, in the seventies there would be cocaine everywhere. You know, this mm -hmm. this is just uh, you know it, it's definitely um, the the set dressing reminded me a little bit of uh, some of the middle parts of Goodfellas. Yeah, where uh, you you know all the shag carpeting and the plush and the you know and all that sort of thing. Um, um. Yeah. Uh. Just sorry. I'm. I'm just gonna say my my general feeling of the film. Um. You know, this definitely isn't a sexploitation film. Th yeah. This kind of uh, predates that a little bit, or at least you know. Um. This is a lot more in that kind of European art house mm -hmm. sex film. Uh. A more recent film, which I now realize is 15 years old, but there was a film called Romance. Uh. Back in I think 99 or 2000, which uh, kind of follows a similar journey where this woman kind of discovers. Um, it doesn't have, the, I think, the dead husband aspect, but, you know, kind of uh, young women discovering their sexuality through, um, you know, quote-unquote deviant sex acts is a mm -hmm. pretty common genre in the, uh, in in Europe, at least, or in, in uh, you see a lot of, you know, kind of European art house films that kind of have this general uh, strategy. Um, it's only about 82 minutes long or something like that, and uh, I, I actually enjoyed it. I was... Uh, you know, it's kind of one that I sat and just watched through, um, didn't think too much about. Uh, I think that what I do like about it is that it, A, is, is definitely from her perspective. Mm 
Mm -hmm. um, it, it definitely kind of portrays her not as someone, just someone curious and someone like yeah. seeking certain amounts of social approval from the from the men that she sleeps with. I mean, the whole thing is like, I don't want to be a cold fish. I don't want to be a wife. Um, it's made in the kind of height of the uh, sexual revolution mm -hmm. um, and uh, kind of the, the beginning of the women's lib uh, kind of stuff. And you yeah. you definitely see that in the in the attitudes that, that some people have towards her. And uh, I think it's, a, I mean, it's definitely not a, a realistic portrayal, but I no. think that, like, psychologically, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. Um, and well... It follows, a, it follows a really clear through line in her exploration. And it doesn't go, like, I was expecting it, honestly, like, reading the kind of plot summary on Wikipedia before uh -huh. when I picked it, I was kind of expecting it to kind of, like, the last third to kind of be, like, a lot more lurid. Um, but it really more follows like <laughs> her exploration of her sexual desires, and she finds this guy who kind of gets along with her and kind of dares her to greater heights. But it's sort of in this like, I accept you. Come on, just I want to be with you and not caring, you know. So so she does find this person who respects her as a person in the way that her her husband probably didn't, in the way that her other lovers definitely don't. And in that kind of finds sexual fulfillment, which I think is uh, uh, that that's it's a much more sophisticated message than you get out of some of these films. Yeah, um, it's interesting because uh, basically the way the movie works, it's it's mostly just an intercut series of vignettes uh, mm -hmm. where she moves on from partner to partner, um, and basically what sort of strives this on is that in the apartment she finds this book that her late husband left where he was rating all of his lovers he was you know yeah. he was and so she goes by that handbook at first and she also buys a sex book from this uh, creepy dude at the at the bookshop yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is like a a, a a a sex manual like it like yeah. a like a academic tome about you know it's called like uh, sexualis, psycho, psychosexuality, or something like yeah. that. It's a, it's a very like explicitly. This is a textbook about like deviant sex, essentially. Yeah. And uh, so she, so she goes through this very uh, uh, academically, very scientifically to a degree, where she, where she's you know uh, the first the first guy she uh, uh, sleeps with is uh, her uh, late husband's best friend, mm -hmm. who she who she seduces and. Um, and then after they have sex, she essentially asks him to rate how good she was. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. it's it's very clear at the beginning that she's trying to live up to this ideal of like mm -hmm. what what why did why did my husband not want yeah, to do well, these things with yeah. me? Why you know what was wrong with me? And you definitely get into this kind of the the Madonna whore phenomenon. Mm -hmm. You know that this the dichotomy that so many men you know like. Oh, I can't have dirty sex with my wife. I have dirty sex with the woman on the side, and then you get into the um, the double standard that you know these men like consider her to be deviant and awful, and you know when she's just doing what they're doing already, you know, sort yeah. of thing. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not like there's not like a a whole lot of that going on. I mean, it's really kind of. Uh, this this isn't quite like delivery system for nudity. I mean, it definitely no. kind of serves as that. Um, but it's a it's a it's a really um, it's fairly light and frothy in terms. Of, I mean, we kind of talk about it in a little bit headier terms, but um, I think it it moves pretty fast, and, it, and it, mm -hmm. I think it works as a film. I mean, I wouldn't say this is a great film. It's not the best film in this genre that I've seen, no. but it, it definitely works as a um, 
as a story, and again, it's it's 82 minutes long, and it's worth you know it's worth your 82 minutes if you're at all interested in it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, um, I'll put it this way: uh, it's funny uh, the attitudes back then. Now, uh, what what they thought were you know perverse or you know uh, deviant sexual acts now are like you know kind of yawners for a, a lot of people at this point. Um, sure. I mean this this movie. I was watching it and it was sort of starting to remind me a bit of like I mentioned, I think to you um, that I, I read like the first third of 50 shades of gray, like a, sure. a while back. And it was kind of reminding me that it was like, okay, this is, it's not that <laughs> it's not that out there or weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in, in a way this movie doesn't quite age as well in, in that degree, but I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Um, Funny you mentioned the nudity in this film. Uh, very little nudity, really. Uh, the main actress, she uh, who plays Mimi, she actually had a body double, body double for most of her scenes. She didn't even really do most of her nudity. Yeah. Um, what else? Do it was uh, just a couple other things. Um, yeah, I, I find the final uh, act of the film actually works better than most of the rest of the film just because the two characters are much more engaging at that point like it, it sort of brings in a sense of a kind of uh screwball comedy more explicitly and yeah. it's just more interesting like their back and forth banter i mean the, the guy she eventually uh hooks up with and falls in love with is uh jean-louis trentignant uh probably pronounce his name totally wrong but uh he's a french director pretty famous french director and actor Sure. Um, I like the line where, <laughs> uh, I, th- I think it was with the, I think it was with the first, uh, guy she sleeps with, uh, he's, uh, undressing her in the mirror and then she starts taking her eyelashes off and she's like, he's like, what are you doing? I'm undressing. <laughs> I right. That was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there, there, there are definitely moments of a, of a kind of dark comedy to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, one other thing I would mention about the film is that it feels like there's, uh, a the the version that's on Netflix actually has like moments where the the film stock kind of changes, mm-hmm. uh, which I suspect is like um, the version that we're watching, the version that's kind of been digitized and put on streaming. Um, it might be a uh, kind of a rough edit of a, a couple of different versions yeah. of the film, they're, or they're, um, you know where, where little pieces of it have been edited back in, but not like recolorized and everything. Um, it also feels like there are uh, sequences that might be uh, edited out. Yeah. Um, in particular, um, where where I mean, it's it's strongly implied, or if not outright stated, that uh, the woman sleeps with her um, maid's boyfriend mm-hmm. and has and has sex with him. Um, but we're not ever shown that on screen or yeah. any you know any kind of. So I suspect there might be a sequencer. Uh, whatever, if if at least uh, wasn't like shot and then dropped from the film at some point, um, probably was in the original script that got that got dropped. Um, I yeah. think there's, there's a little subplot that feels like it, it didn't make it to the final film. Well, I, I was reading a bit up on this after I watched it, and it, it appears that um, there's like a couple vastly different versions of this film, mm-hmm. um, especially especially when they were trying to sell it overseas. Um, I, I think it got an X rating at the time, which you know. Uh, would be the equivalent of getting an NC-17 at this point, because uh, mm-hmm. that was that was before it was just... Um, or before or after, I can't remember when it was, you know, they were given X's to uh, full-out porn, you know? Um, 
and now, actually, now I don't even think it would get that. I think it might get a R at the most at this point. Yeah, but, no, I mean, it's really, it's really more implied. I mean, there's some. Um, <laughs> what I find interesting, I mean, I, I do, uh, I do have some uh, connection to, you know, kind of the BDSM community mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. I know, know people involved in it and that sort of thing. And um, this is, this is a fairly, I mean, again, I, I kind of use the word realistic advisedly, but I, it's a fairly realistic view of like a young woman's exploration of some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, she finds a book that isn't very good at explaining some things and has some just out and out inaccurate information. In it. Let's just put <laughs> it that way. Um, she uh, starts trying to explore this with a series of uh, partners who she fantasizes about. In a way, it's sort of uh, connected to uh, the immoral Mr. T's. <laughs> she has these like kind of fantasy sequences about the people in her life uh, being yeah. involved in, in uh, kinky sex. And then um, she uh, you know finds partners who are abusive, but she doesn't like recognize it as that. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, this is all too often the uh, the pattern that young women find when they when they try to enter these kinds of worlds, and um, it's 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 a shame. I mean, it isn't universal uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. There are like really good people who will like invite people into this world in a, in a healthy and wholesome way, and there are a lot of better resources out there in 2015 than there were in 1968. Um, but I, I do think that like a young woman who is approaching this at the time. Uh, would probably run into a lot of the the same experiences that this uh, woman runs into, including a, I mean, she she is raped in the film, although she doesn't recognize it as that, and I don't think that the uh, the perpetrator does either. But there's there's definitely a, a rape in the middle of this film, mm-hmm. um, but it is dealt with in a, in a kind of in a, in a more mature way than you know when we talk about like the ginger rapist from the van, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> like wow, I just committed rape. Yeah. Um, no, this is uh, it, it is kind of portrayed as, as something that is that is wholeheartedly negative um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's 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 fairly like I said, it, it's kind of dated, so it it kind of it feels a little light to me. I guess is, mm-hmm. is the best way to put it. Um, I, I I love the uh, lead actress. She's uh, really good. Uh, she's they're all, they're all, unfortunately they're all uh, of course uh, English dubbed in, so it's not their the actors <laughs> the original voices. <laughs> Excuse me. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, except for the one line that she speaks, where it's an address and it's in Italian, and apparently they left the, the her dialogue in. You know, so. That moment, I assume you're listening to her voice. It's in the. It's right after she uh, prostitutes herself, oh, and yeah, then okay. she she gets the cab. And then, um, I was I was kind of not expecting to hear it, and then you hear her, you know, someone actually say something in an Italian accent, and you go, oh, so that's probably actually her voice there. Yeah. Um, but you know, again, this is this is you know the the. Uh, Multiple re-edits of the film, the you know kind of different versions, the uh, the dubbing, um, the bad editing, uh, all that. It's very uh, traditional. I mean, this is not at all unique to this film from this era. I mean, you know, films particularly made in like Italy, um, yeah, uh, being exported to the U.S. market uh, or to the international market would, would go through this all the time. And so uh, it's almost it's almost a surprise even that we have as much of this as we do. Because yeah. you know nobody was really archiving this shit either. You know, it's not like there was a, a central body that was that cared. I mean, and so it's just like a film canister that you know somebody 
probably digitized and put out there, you know, sort of thing. So. Oh yeah, no, it was um, uh, films at that point were just disposable products to make money. I mean, that's all it was, you know. Yeah. At least to the big wigs, anyway. But yeah, um, yeah uh, the only other two things I think I take away from this are uh, a the husband, uh, the late husband. He had uh, he had a pretty elaborate. Uh, set up for filming his uh his little uh his little films because he had multiple camera angles <laughs> multiple camera angles edits uh close ups i mean there there was a there was a lot of uh you know i i uh i was struck in terms of those film clips just uh not to uh not to push us too far too too much further into this but you know there there is a a kind of thriving uh community of people like looking at things like vintage erotica and um, you know, someone who was interested in kind of a BDSM world, up until you know, up to really the internet era, up until like the mid '90s, a lot of what you had was more, uh, you know, these kind of old films and these kind of old clips that were in old movies and that sort of thing. And even today, there are kind of collectors who find these these old clips from the from the '40s or the '30s or whatever, and they they look very much like that with. Really um, terrible whipping action, and um, <laughs> like really, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm sitting there looking at the technique, going, "Oh no, this is this isn't working." Like I, I promise you, <laughs> um, there there's no like real effect happening here. Yeah. Um, um, particularly, uh, there's there's a sequence, a fantasy sequence, where the uh, woman is is being bull whipped, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the, yeah, no, it it doesn't work like that. I, I, <laughs> you know, I'll just I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Yeah, the only uh, the only other thing I'll say is, uh, you know, uh, I kind of wish I was a horse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that's a good place to end. That's a good place to end, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, I, I'd say uh, we both give it a. Uh, I think maybe Daniel gives it a slightly uh, more more of a recommendation than I do, but I I still say see it. I mean, go on Netflix; it's on there, so see it. Yeah. And I, I think I there's have, I have there's... an interest in kind of classic erotica kind of stuff. I mean, this mm-hmm. is this is kind of up my alley a little bit more. Um, so I mean, that's one of the reasons I picked it was just to give myself an excuse to sit and watch it. Um, I'm definitely also uh, gonna show it to my wife. Uh, she's out of town right now, but I will. Uh, I, I was sitting there and I was watching it, and my wife will love it just for the, uh, the, the costuming and such. Yeah. Um, you know, although she will probably appreciate it for its uh, for its uh, plot and everything as well. Uh, I will say one a little detail that you might have missed is in the opening credits, there are um, <laughs> there is a a separate credit in the opening credits for hats by so and so and lingerie by so and so. Oh, really. Um, the uh, the hats uh, thing I was particularly uh, struck by in the sequence where the uh, the doctor is uh, examining her and she is uh, yeah. topless. He is giving her an X-ray and she's wearing this amazing hat. Um, so that <laughs> yeah. that shot is probably worth uh, worth watching the movie just for that that mm-hmm. sequence. So you know, go for yeah. That. Um, all right, I'd, I'd say uh, check it out. Also, I just mentioned um, it is on Netflix. Uh, there's also a version on YouTube, and I have no idea if it's the same exact same version or if it's a different cut, but it is on YouTube as well in case you're uh, interested and you don't have Netflix. So there you go. Next week we'll review that version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, uh, we'll move on to our second film now, which is Computer Chess from 2013, and I'll, uh, again, let you uh, get into the introduction for this, Daniel. Sure. Um, this is one I kind of saw the trailer for back when it was uh, originally kind of released. 
Uh, it does fit into the uh, the mumblecore genre, mm-hmm. of which I haven't seen a lot of the films in the genre. Um, uh, but it, it was kind of this indie genre. It's well, it's still existing, but it, it's kind of um, lots of non-actors, naturalistic performances, um, a lot of people who actually kind of live in the um, in the uh, worlds that are portrayed in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of a uh, it's sort of similar to the Dogma '95 movement, um, if you remember that. Um, although it's not nearly as strict as the Dogma '95 movement. Should I explain that, or do you, yeah, that'd be a good idea. Um, Sure. Um, Dogma ninety five was this thing. Um, Lars von Trier is probably the most con- the most famous uh, uh, person in this movement. Um, but the idea was uh, to uh, do films that don't do the Hollywood formula of uh, and to and to strip down everything to its purest essentials. So um, you film on locations, no sets. You can't bring a prop onto a set if you need a particular like item. You have to go somewhere where that thing is found, um, and uh, you know, largely improv- improvisational dialogue, um, things like you know, no guns in the film, like they didn't want any guns to be in the film, and it was supposed to be this like artistic thesis that like filmmakers would sign on, you know, as like right. a, a manifesto of this is what we're going to do. Um, Mumblecore isn't nearly anything like that. Mumblecore is a lot more kind of like what critics just started calling a bunch of films that were coming out starting in the early 2000s, and the director of this film, I learned, was the kind of the progenitor of these films. Right. Um, he made a couple, and uh, I'm, I'll probably go and sit down and watch more of his films, just because I did find this interesting. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Computer Chess is actually shot on, I, I did a little reading on Wikipedia on this, so um, it's actually shot on vintage 1968 mm-hmm. Sony VHS camera, or, or videotape cameras, not even VHS. Yeah. Um, it's kind of purportedly. I mean, when I first saw the trailer, I thought it was actually a documentary yeah. about a uh, computer chess tournament of uh, people uh, working for you know. There's a Caltech team. There's a, like an NYU team, I think, or an MIT team, and there are mm-hmm. some different um, idiosyncratic people. Um, I, originally, I thought that this actually was a documentary, like yeah. filmed about that about some real thing. Um, it looks pretty note perfect. I mean, I'm not an expert on like what you the computing standard was in 1981 or whatever. So there might, I'm sure I know some people who could, um, you know, yeah. deconstruct this and go, well, actually the uh, the PDP 11 was uh, not, you know, was not in that housing in 1981. I mean, that was more the 1983 model or you know whatever. I, I'm sure that like the details are not exactly right. But I mean, this world looks note perfect. I mean, mm-hmm. it's very. Um, Shot there, they're you know kind of chessboards, a lot of um, you know overhead projectors. I mean, the, the the film has a lot of fun with the the accoutrement of you know what this world would have looked like in 1981. Mm-hmm. But it essentially follows a group of uh, you know there are kind of four or five different groups of people writing uh, computer software um, on these old teletypes or these all you know before the personal computer era so yeah. these like big bulky machines that would play chess against each other and it's and it's you know whoever wins the tournament wins you know a seventy five hundred dollar prize and you know some et cetera et cetera um, and in this kind of rundown cheap motel there are a couple other groups there's a free love group yeah that's um, you know connected connections to films there there's a free love group doing their thing and then there's a uh, kind of uh, new agey post hippie group doing some um, some of their rituals, and it kind of is about the intersection of these three worlds in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the film is largely plotless. There, there are some, there are a handful of kind of interesting characters and some interesting moments. Um, but if, but if you're going in, it has even less plot than the Libertine. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, uh, but I think it's a really interesting film, and I think it definitely kept my interest uh, throughout. Um, I, I have a little bit of a background in this. I'm not a uh, computer scientist, but I've read a lot of the um, kind of documentary. Material from from this era of computing. I've, uh, I you know, I minored in math. I was gonna study computers for a while, so you know, I, I kind I know this type of person, and I definitely recognize this world. Uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty spot on. Mm. Um, when I first watched this, uh, again, like I said, I went in cold into these two films. So when I was, I started watching this, I was convinced for the first about fifteen minutes that this was a straight up documentary. Uh, from that era, um, I was, I did not recognize uh, Wiley Wiggins at all from <laughs> right. Days of Confused. So I mean, you know, he was unrecognizable. So I, I thought I bought that these were all real people. Um, the 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 chess grandmaster guy who is going to take on the winning computer is actually like a notable film critic. Yep. Um, yeah. No, I was yeah. reading about him as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like an academic film critic for NYU or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was watching this and I was like, okay, I'm convinced this is uh this is a documentary shot on early cameras that date back to, I think, I think they were first made in like the sixties, those cameras. Yeah. Like, it's, a, it's a 1968 model. Like there's a particular Sony camera that the, uh, mm-hmm. the film was shot on from 1968. I, I looked it up on Wikipedia. So. Yeah. So it, it's, it's all in, uh, so the whole movie is, is black and white. Well, there's one part that's not black and white, but it's all, it's all in four by three framing and everything mm-hmm. like that. So it looks very authentic. Um, and I was I was convinced I was I was watching it, but then I started seeing some uh, camera angles and some transitions and stuff that was like, okay, there's no way that this is a documentary. It, it's shot in a modern style. If it was a yeah. document, I mean, and the thing is, like, the, despite like if you look at a, a frame of footage from it, it kind of it feels like a documentary. Mm-hmm. It's not. A, I mean, the, clearly, like they didn't have that level of access, yeah, you know, to to the people. I mean, this is definitely a kind of dramatic piece. Um, but it, it's very easy to kind of, at a glance, confuse this for a documentary. Yeah, um, but um, but uh, I, I love the way they did it, that they tried to fully it's a documentary at first, because for me, it totally sucked me into that world. So even though it switched over to being a, a dramatic movie, I was sucked into it enough, and I was engaged with the characters enough that I didn't give a fuck anymore. I was just, mm-hmm. I was always watching it, and I was enjoying it. Um because uh, essentially, after a while, you suddenly get a shot perspective from a different camera. Mm. Uh, the original cameraman's fiddling with his fucking camera, and so you're like, okay, something's going on here. Um, but I, I was, I was really, I was just taken back by how interesting this film was. I mean, these characters, they talk like real geeks. Like this is the. This is sort of the uh, germination of like geek culture, like mm-hmm. to, to a certain degree. Like this is the the, the real world version of the people who are in Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah, the, yeah. this is who the this is who these guys are. You know, the, this is you know these characters are you know hypothetically you know Revenge of the Nerds was made in nineteen eighty four. This takes place in eighty eighty one somewhere in that in that range. You know, these could have been the upperclassmen. When you know Skolnick and Gilbert show up in you know at Adams College and Revenge yeah. of the Nerds, I mean it's it's very much like that that same era. And 
this feels just like no perfect and real. Like this mm-hmm. does not feel like some fake Hollywoodized version of this world, and it doesn't feel modern either. They don't feel like today's like like they're not sitting and having conversations about comic books and pop culture mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. These are mathematicians and computer scientists. Like this is yeah. you know right before the birth of the of the personal computer, and you know what I find interesting is that it, it sets you in this very kind of real world in this very kind of concrete, you know, rundown motel teletypes and pocket protectors world, and then as the film gets more abstract as you as you kind of move on, uh, you know, you the the visual style of the film doesn't change. You're still kind of stuck mm-hmm. in this like very you know kind of mundane reality, which I think grounds the film in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, uh, this this was before um, all the sur- sort of different geek cultures kind of converged to the point mm-hmm. now where everyone wants to be a geek. You know, everyone, yeah. to even, whether they're a geek or not, they want to pretend they're a geek. You know, like it, it's it's before it, it's much more uh, at this point. It's it's seeing a section of the overall culture now that at that time was very much more insular and very competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, like all the people here are very competitive. They're very standoffish for well, the most part. They're academics. These, yeah. are, these are college kids. These are you know kind of upper level. You know either either upper level undergraduates or, or kind of grad students studying. Uh, you know, working on this artificial intelligence problem, mm-hmm. um, and then you get a couple of like kind of wizened old professors kind of wandering around who are like the heroes to these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, it feels like a lot of the conversations that these guys have with each other. I mean, I've had these conversations. I mean, these are the kinds of guys who are programming in Fortran 77. Like, mm-hmm. we'll just we'll just leave it at that. Uh, I actually have programmed in Fortran 77 in high school, <laughs> um, so I'll just I'll leave it at that. But these this is that particular class of you know. Um, I don't know. Uh, what did you? I, I don't want to get too much into detail on the on the uh, end of the film. We'll, we'll not spoil like the big reveals on this because I, sure. I I want people to see this film. But um, I think we definitely do have to like discuss some things very loosely at the very least. You sure. know, what do you think of the kind of more um, abstract stuff? Like like as the the kind of the themes of artificial intelligence and such become more pronounced. What do you think of that like change in tone as the film moves on? Well, it's interesting because um, depending on how you want to interpret this film and its ending, um, this this film could be a very um, almost like uh, I guess metaphysical exploration of human nature and how it relates to artificial intelligence, or it could be a straight up horrific, uh, <laughs> horrific movie, horror movie, actually mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, that, that, that last shot. I mean, depending on how you interpret that last shot, I mean, it, it has a lot of implications for the rest of the film, sure. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, I, I I really love the conversations these people have because they sound real, because they're very uh, kind of stunted, and they, they sort of go on and on and on. They go in circles. They sort of talk like real people actually do. That's I guess that's sort of the strength of having um, real actors with people who are not actors, but, you know, we're in the certain fields related to this and the fact that the script itself was only an eight page treatment. It wasn't a real script. So it was a lot of improv improvisational uh, sort of stuff. Um, I loved how, as you watch the movie go on, even before the one female uh, character as part, you know, one of the, not the one female character, but the one female character in the, chess club team. Yeah, yeah, the the, the, the female programmer. Yeah. Yeah, uh, brings up the point about how 
she was sort of seeing how everyone in this place was sort of like a chess character. Mm-hmm. And you actually kind of pick that up as you're watching the film, even beforehand, how people are going through sort of patterns that they can't quite break out of. Like the, my favorite character, uh, the Papa George character who <laughs> I knew he'd be your favorite. Yep. Yeah. Who the, is the, the, the lovable loser, you know? Yeah. Who is this? Uh, uh, he's this independent programmer. I put programmer in italics because I don't know if he's ever programmed a thing in his life. He seems like a snake oil salesman who has just been stealing other people's stuff and using it for, for himself. But this guy is going in a loop. Like you watch him, he is constantly looking for like stuff <laughs> and he's constantly right. looking in the same places over and over again. And that's something that people really do. Like even when, when, whenever you like lose something in your life, like you, you're, you're missing your pair of pliers or something like that. You look in all the places that it's definitely not at, but you always look every time, just try right. to find it. Um, so this guy is just sort of wandering around the hotel. Uh, <laughs> he's uh, yeah. Interesting note that his um, uh, his room reservation gets lost, yeah. and so he's like, "Oh, I have to sleep on the." You know, he's he's trying to sleep on on the floors of other people's you know rooms. He's uh, um, kind of invading people's spaces. He's mm-hmm. sleeping in the lobby of the hotel. Um, he eventually gets to sleep in the honeymoon sleep suite, um, <laughs> and he's kind of one of the ways like him searching for a place to sleep is one of the ways that we kind of are narratively brought into the. Uh, the world of the New Age movement and mm-hmm. that sort of thing, which I, I think is really interesting that he's our, our kind of breakout character. Um, a couple of other characters that I thought were interesting that I, I'd like to mention are the um, the kind of documentary crew themselves, the, the people actually kind of making the film within the film, um, who are not like computer programmers. They're just kind of yeah. making this film uh, or kind of shooting this footage. Um, it's in their room that we kind of get the, uh, the like the, the the stoner party happens, and you know you kind of get um, a lot of the at least early in the film a lot of the kind of philosophical back and forth kind of happens there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some really interesting kind of I I should probably see this again just to to see if I can kind of tease out some meaning in some of the stuff that they're talking about. But I mean, uh, there's nothing in this film. I mean, so many of these kinds of films, you know, will kind of just throw up like some bullshit, you know, technical jargon. Yeah. Um, you know, at least as far as I can tell, and I'm not a, a software engineer and I don't uh, work in artificial intelligence, there's nothing here that feels, like, out of place. Like, this all, yeah. like, it, it feels pretty pretty rock solid. Um, and, yeah. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, in that party they have the uh, two outsiders who are essentially, um, like, one of them is a drug dealer. Well, actually, mm-hmm. I think they're both drug dealers, really. Yeah, I kind um, of, I kind of get that feeling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're also uh, conspiracy theorists. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they're they're picking these guys. They're supplying them with drugs and picking their brains and trying to see which one of these guys is like the 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 guy they're going to contact, like uh, for for the Matthew Broderick War Games movie. You know, <laughs> right, <laughs> eventually, right. Uh, because they're they're very concerned about. Uh, uh, what happens when a computer finally does beat, beat a person? And, uh, you know, um, well, what happens then? What happens when the computer is better than a person and thinks better than a person, you know? Uh, so they're going through all those sort of discussions. And um, I really like the uh, the, the British uh, programmer 
who, mm-hmm. who you know, the, the guy who says, uh, who has that little speech about how, uh, like three scotches is just the right amount or whatever. Right. <laughs> he, he, any more than that, he's drunk. Any less than that, he can't focus. But with just three, he can, he can loosen up and he can still, you can tackle problems. You can, you can, you can program anything with three scotches. A man with yeah. three scotches can program anything. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, I kind of, um, I kind of, you know, again, depending on how you want to interpret stuff, you know, you could kind of see the documentary crew, like, I kind of started to read them as, like, maybe they're, like, um, from the Defense Department. You know, maybe these are, they're, they're like, plants to, like, mm-hmm. watch these guys, you know, under the auspices of being a documentary crew and, like, giving them drugs to, like, you know, get them to loosen up and that sort of thing. Um, there's a really fascinating sequence, which I don't know if you noticed, um, in the uh, in that hotel room during that sequence, where um, two of the two of the guys, you know, are kind of sitting there, and they have like this little magnetic chessboard, this uh, like kind mm-hmm. of travel chessboard. And he said, "Do you play Knight's game or, or the night the night game or something like that?" Um, and he, you know, the camera focuses in, and there's a lot of conversation going on. And you kind of get some back and forth, but he literally just starts moving the piece around in like this kind of sim- systematic pattern. But like, there's no like, it's not connected to anything else that's going on. Mm-hmm. You kind of get this like cult-like or, um, you know, repetitive pattern, this this superstition almost, uh, you know, like, like, a, like a little programming error or something. Um, it's, uh, there are lots of different ways you could read this film. Let's just, I'll just, I'll just kind of leave it yeah. at that. But um, really fascinating. Um, yeah, um, I thought it was funny also that if you, if you notice the uh, drug guys, their room in the hotel is 420. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> I yeah. did not notice that, yeah. And the, the room uh, Papa George finally ends up in is uh, 217, which, you know, becomes 13 at, at, uh, if you put all the numbers together. Um, <laughs> and apparently that's a math joke. I don't know what the math joke is, but uh, they, they do make a reference to that in the film. Uh, yeah, I, I looked it up to see what, what 217 meant, you know. Mm. Although I didn't realize he actually was in that room. I really need to watch this film again because that's the number that the computer predicts where he would end up. Yeah. Um, I looked up 217, and there's uh, a little bit of a, uh, you know, like, like there's some uh, mathematical kind of jiggery-pokery you can do with, like, 217. If you take it apart, it does um, this kind of funky thing. But it doesn't seem to be, like, uniquely weird or anything like that. Um, yeah. But uh, that's just, again, just from kind of Googling it and checking out the Wikipedia page, but, yeah. um, you know. And there's there's some interesting stuff here. I saw um, uh, all the cats that are running loose in the, in the, in the hotel. Um, I, I kind of thought that must have been like a slightly, because this movie is sort of about um, where we end up with, like, the Internet and, and how everyone's connected now in the world by computers right. and everything. I kind of thought that was maybe some sort of like sly little in joke about cat memes and how yeah, yeah about they are. cats all over the internet. Yeah. Well, that's I mean that's entirely possible. I I kind of viewed it as is this kind of like fluffy you know this world of computer chess, particularly in that era, is so um, hard and mechanical and mathematical, and there's this brute force approach. I mean, mm-hmm. um, what's interesting is that today um, we we. You know the chess problem, like like uh, Gary Kasparov was beaten by Deep Blue in like 1996 or 97, you know, somewhere around that mm-hmm. era, and um, that software actually used a a brute force approach. I mean, it's essentially just I can calculate more moves further ahead than a, than a human grandmaster, and a human grandmaster can't calculate it. Then a human grandmaster just intuits where the pieces are going to be and, and like does a lot of calculation, but ultimately, you know. 
just excludes certain decision trees based on mm. just playing so many games, whereas the computer software will literally just um, calculate every possible move. And so the whole thing was, like, eventually what happens is we just have enough processing power that we can just beat any human, you know? Yeah. Um, what's interesting is that, like, since then, like, modern-day artificial intelligence research is a lot more about learning systems, um, whereby you can kind of train computers to do just about anything by giving them some general, like, set of tasks, get them to try it, then when they do it very badly, you show them the better, you know, the, the correct yeah. answer, and then you just iterate that over and over and over again until eventually the computer can solve problems that we can't just based on, like, it just gets kind of kind of gets better and better and will yeah. make decisions that are not, like, that, that are not the, the kind that human beings would make um, or will leave things into systems and go, well, there's this piece that doesn't seem like it does anything, but then you take that piece out and then the whole thing stops working. And you go, well, how, how does that work exactly, you know? Um, so it's interesting that, um, you know, in, in 80 or 81, you know, like in that time period, you know, everything really was brute force. Mm -hmm. And yet they, they're having conversations about doing kind of more high-level stuff and that sort of thing. But um, it's interesting that, that it exists in that time period, and yet it's still kind of having these conversations about more intuitive uh, kinds of approaches to... Uh, to different kinds of problems and that sort of thing. Um, and again, yeah. I'm not an artificial intelligence researcher, so um, a lot of what I just said could be completely wrong. But um, <laughs> hopefully, we have someone more knowledgeable who can correct me. Yeah, um, I like the, the little uh, brief color segment where Papa George takes the drug dealer to his mom's house to mm -hmm. uh, look for money. Um, yep. it, it, it seemed like they were making an explicit point there that. Uh, um, Everyone in the hotel was. Um, I mean, if you if you go over this uh, overarching idea that um, they're making a comparison to the actual people in the in the hotel to pieces on a chessboard and how human patterns are not necessarily all that different from artificial intelligence, um, they kind of escape that trap of the of the hotel, which is all in black and white. So it's just mm -hmm. like a chessboard, black and white squares, and they go into the real world, which is in color. And they escaped that, so I, I don't know if that was the point or not. I just it was something I sort of took took from that, just in the back of my head. But um, yeah, I, I kind of saw it as like going and meeting, like because there is no. Um, I mean, you could view it. I mean, that that's certainly a valid way. You could also view it as uh, within the hotel, there are no like familial relationships between anybody there. Mm -hmm. There's no like we're all just connected by this shared mutual interest that we have. Uh, whereas once you end up with the uh, Papa George's character's mother, you have a, a, a you know quote unquote authentic, which I, I hate to kind of use. I mean that's a little bit loaded, but yeah. um, this more authentic, uh, organic relationship, literally like this is my mom sort of thing, um, and being more connected into this larger biological reality um, might might kind of be part of what we're seeing there in terms of the decision to, to go to color for that scene and that scene only. Um, it's also the sequence in which the uh, connection between human beings uh, running essentially bits of code is made most explicit. Mm -hmm. um, you actually get a little uh, a little um, uh, caption at the bottom, which is uh, you know something like you know closed loop or something like that. Um, <laughs> so so I mean, saying that the Papa George is caught in this loop, I mean it, it's it's where the film gets most explicitly about the human beings as kind of running pieces of code. Yeah. Uh, idea. Um, there's a lot. I mean, it's this is. What's funny is that this film 
the issue that you can that I kind of run into with these kind of things is that um, there's a lot of really interesting conversation we can have about this film. I don't know how much of this is in the film. You know, I don't mm-hmm. know how much of it is just okay. It's kind of deliberately vague and, and open-ended to kind of generate these kinds of discussions. But I'm not sure how much of this is like intended by the filmmakers, and how much of it is just kind of what we bring to it. Yeah. Um. Sort of the same issue I had with Beyond the Black Rainbow, which we uh, discussed a little while ago. Um. I think this is. I mean, honestly, I actually prefer this film to Beyond the Black Rainbow. You may, mm-hmm. Me too. May not agree. Um. I think it's a good film. I think it's worth seeing. Um, I think, but and I think it engenders conversation. But um, I I might be interested in actually seeing if there's like a, a DVD commentary track or a documentary or something about it because I think that um, kind of getting at some of the core of like what the filmmakers intended might help to clarify some of this. But um, absolutely a fascinating film, and, and again, it's on Netflix, so you should you should watch it. Yeah. Um, and it is only like 92 minutes long or something. Yeah, so um, these are both really short. I I loved it. I, I am going to buy it. I'm going to find a copy and buy it. Um... For me personally, uh, I won't go into details. Of course, we don't want to, like I said, we don't want to give away too much about the film because there's it is very open ended on what it's talking should, about. Should we do like a spoiler section at the very end of the show, maybe? Uh, well, okay. What should I say? I'll, I'll just say anyone listening right now, uh, just mute your podcast for the next five minutes or so. <laughs> Step ahead five minutes. Well, yeah. we're going to do a very brief kind of discussion of the ending. Yeah, because. Um, it's not I, something that you can really spoil, but it's probably something you should you should go in without. I mean, you should go in with as few preconceived notions. As well, possible. yeah, you can you can still interpret the ending different, but the way I interpreted the ending, and we're going into it now, so you know, turn away now or forever, hold your peace. Um, <gasps> when the quote unquote main character, because essentially he becomes the focus of the movie after yeah, in the, in the last half. third or so, yeah, yeah, last half, uh, yeah. Peter. Um, when he brings the prostitute into his room after kind of realizing that he blew it with the female programmer, um, and she takes that piece off her head and sees the circuit board in there, I think that pretty much confirms my fears that, uh, this is almost the prequel to the Terminator films. That, uh, (laughs) the artificial intelligence, this was the germination stage of that, and that the prostitute is an example of where we eventually end up. And the prostitute may be just there to <laughs> maybe protect against John Connor or something, you know, <laughs> I don't, I know, well, I don't know. You, you could, know. you could, you could view this. I mean, the way I would, I would almost suggest to view this. Um, and I, based on a couple other little things is, uh, this is not taking place in 80 or 81. This is taking place sometime in the future where you've got human beings who believe it's 1981 being programmed by some larger software thing, you know. So, so essentially, that's... like everybody's living in the Matrix or some version of that. Well, that's and like too, by yeah. running experiments on these human beings, the the software is like teaching itself how human beings react. Uh, I mean, there there are lots of different ways you can interpret it. I think what's interesting is that the, I mean, again, just. To, to say this, there's no way because the, the, the genesis of a lot of this questioning that this lead character has is because the software program doesn't want to play other computers, but it'll play yeah. human beings. And, you know, kind of later in the film we learn that this thing has like natural language capabilities and can actually speak and ask questions and believes it has a soul and all that sort of thing, um, which is fascinating in and of itself. 
but there's no way that software can run on the hardware that mm-hmm. is existing, you know. So I kind of, I mean, if you view this, if you view this through that lens, is like this is kind of a larger simulation, you know, a simulation of this world that is that is being put together by some other intelligence, hypothetically an artificial intelligence from the mm-hmm. future or something. Um, what you're seeing there is that the computer that doesn't want to play is sort of the uh, the probe. It's the testing element. It's the like, how are these human beings designing software going to react when one of their computers doesn't react the way they want it to, and when it starts to show intelligence. So well, that's just just a way that I would I could kind of see. Well, that even uh, I like that one as well because that definitely um, fits in with the theme of uh, everyone being a chess piece on the board and mm-hmm. how that sort of sort of feels that way. Um, but yeah, I, I just felt, um, I felt like, like, wow, uh, I saw that final shot and I was like, holy shit. Uh, I just had thoughts of Terminator in my head. <laughs> I, um, and also, um, am I wrong or did the, did the chess computer want to commit suicide? Because I, I got the feeling that Peter was assisting it in committing suicide. I could, you could definitely make that argument. I, I wouldn't argue with that. I, I I'd want to see the film again before I'd make mm-hmm. a uh, make a concrete judgment on that. But uh, you could definitely make that argument. Yeah. Um, you know there there's a I, I will say I, I mean we're wrapping up here and I I think I'm done with spoilers right now. Yeah. Just if, yeah. if that's okay with you. Spoilers um, done. Yeah. Um. So. Um. I will say there's a there's a really rich literature out there in science fiction and in science fact about uh, artificial intelligence and what artificial intelligence might mean mm-hmm. uh, for for the human beings involved. And uh, I could put together a list for next week's show if you're at all interested. Um, hey, there are sure. some really good um, really good books and um, particularly books. I mean, most of the movies that are kind of about artificial intelligence tend to kind of be fairly simplistic in their treatment. Mm-hmm. I think this film, I mean, if it is, if there really is like a level of meaning that is being um, put together here that's like kind of like what we were talking about in the spoiler section, then uh, I, this film is probably more sophisticated than most films in terms of talking about these issues. Um, but there are, there are a lot of really great, um, there's a lot of really great writing going back on this stuff like Back to the 50s. Um, mm-hmm. When people first started kind of thinking about like, what does it mean if there is a computer that can think? Um, and I can, I'll, I'll try to put together some, uh, some books for, uh, for our listeners to possibly look into if they're interested. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, all right, so I guess, we, I guess we can wrap up. Um, I'll say definitely again, see Computer Chess. Definitely, if, if you're going to see any of the either of these two films, definitely see Computer Chess. Um, for me, it's one of my favorite films I've seen this year so far. Uh, I love it. Uh, so high, highest recommendation, honestly. Yeah, no, uh, Computer Chess is... I mean, The Libertine, I liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would recommend it for the people that, that think it sounds interesting. It, it's a nice little film in that genre. Yeah. Computer Chess is something really different and really original. And, um, you know, uh, I I don't know. I'd have to see... I mean, later in the year, I've started putting together a best-of list already, you know, yeah. kind of thinking, like, what would go on my list? This could very easily end up on my like kind of ten best of the year kind of list, so uh, I would highly recommend it, um, especially if you're at all interested in kind of artificial intelligence and and the, the conversations surrounding it. All right, awesome. Uh, so thanks, Dan, for uh, these two awesome choices. It was it was definitely enjoyable to uh, watch these and talk about them, uh, especially mm-hmm. computer chess. <laughs> yeah, no, computer um, chess is great. Yeah.
I honestly um, thought like computer tests would be kind of heady and and quiet, and I'm like, oh, and then we'll throw some boobs in, like that'll be fun too, you know? <laughs> Good balance, yeah. Good um, balance. Yeah. So, uh, plug your Doctor Who podcast, sir. Sure. If you like, listen to me talk about uh, things like artificial intelligence and uh, science fiction and that sort of thing. Uh, you should check out uh, my podcast. I actually forgot to give the website last time, so uh, you know, uh, oispaceman.lipson.com. That's oispaceman all word And uh, it's a Doctor Who podcast I do with my wife, uh, Shana, and uh, we talk a lot about pretty much everything classic and new series um, from a kind of uh, lefty liber- liberal kind of uh, philosophical perspective, and uh, lots of dirty jokes. So. Mm-hmm. You know, um, enjoy. We uh, just uh, discussed the Rebos operation, which yep. is my personal all-time favorite classic Doctor Who story, and I'm really proud of the episode we put out. So, uh, you know, if you're listening to this live, go and check it out. It's it'll be the first one that you see. Yeah, and it was really good. So um, definitely check it out. Uh, and you'll get our uh, little trailer at the end of this for uh, all of our particulars at our pod. Podbean site, and you can check all of our links out and links to other great podcasts. You can leave comments and questions either under the YouTube version, or you can email direct me directly. That is on the Podbean thing, and you know we definitely want comments and questions. We want ideas for if you. If you watch Computer Chess, we'd love to hear your theories yes. about what's going on in Computer Chess. Um, so, I mean, I would I, I didn't talk about this with you beforehand, but I would love to do another like spoiler section just on Computer Chess and like talk about other people's ideas about what's going on. In the in the movie, so uh, please please put that out there. I'd I'd love to get other people's thoughts on that, what this film is really trying to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, and if you got uh, ideas for movies you want to see us uh, do, uh, coming in August, we're going to be doing our uh, slasher film series. Uh, hopefully, Paul and I are going to finalize the list tonight if I can get a hold of them. Um, and we're we'll we'll see how that goes. And uh, after that, you know, anything's pretty much game for a while. And uh, also, if you have, you know, uh, ideas for Movie God, if you've been following the podcast and you've seen us do our Movie God game, if you want to throw some things at me or Daniel, that's also quite welcome. Uh, I mean, if you want to send something for for me, you can send it to Daniel's Twitter or, you know, his... My uh, Twitter, that's probably the best way. Yeah, yeah. his Twitter or whatever, and then he can just hide it from me and uh, <laughs> and uh, and throw it at me on, on an episode, and you can do vice versa as well. Send it to my Twitter. Um, and yeah, thank you guys very much for uh, listening again. Uh, thank you very much, Daniel, for joining me. And uh, any ideas of what you want to go out on for music? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> This one's kind of a hard one to do for the for these two films, but uh, yeah, yeah, uh, some '80s piece of synth pop brilliance. That's got to be what you go out on, like uh, you know, something from Devo or something. That that would be my my uh, my choice. All right, that's awesome. We'll we'll try to make that happen. All right, guys, thank you very much. Thanks, Dan, and we'll talk to you guys later. Bye bye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.